guys, we are about to deep dive into the Richard Ramirez case through the lens of Netflix's new docuseries, Night Stalker, The Hunt for a Serial Killer. This week, we look at episodes one and two and open this so-called can of worms. There are so many things to spill the tea on, from the erratic array of victims to the involvement of the detectives' lives to the theatrical nature of the docuseries. So let's spill the tea. I'm Alyssa. I'm Erin. And we are Crime TV. I don't even know where to start with this one. So I found that the intro with Detective Gill is very ominous in the way that it starts. Gives me heebie-jeebies that they were describing the Night Stalker just right off the bat. And he was this monster that had crawled into your windows and killed your whole family. That was morbid. That's That's literally how this starts. I mean, I know, but that was just like, you went right in for it today. So, quick side story. Already? Yes. Okay. I realized I was morbid whenever... One of my family friends and I were talking and she, I said something to the effect of, oh, I can't wait to get home and just watch my crime shows. And she said, well, what do you like? And I said, forensic files because they leave absolutely nothing out. You get all the crime scene photos, nothing blurred out. And she looked at me with this gawk and she said, oh, mine's criminal minds because I know it's fake. I'm like, oh, I, I probably need therapy. <laughs> Oh, on that note, though, why in a lot of these photos, was it literally to protect or be respectful to the victims that they had the lines over, like, their eyes and faces a lot? Well, I think that's what it was, is that they were being respectful for those people. And because your face is, you know, one of the more identifying features of you. Sure. And a lot of these victims had head trauma. Oh, so it was pretty grotesque as well. Right. Like... I would not want to watch a documentary and see somebody that I knew that they were all beaten and bloody. And for us, we can put ourselves at a distance from that and be like, oh, I've never met that person. We'll never meet that person. So it doesn't hurt me to see them. But I think that's just being a general respectful of those people. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I was wondering if it was covering up especially grotesque wounds or more of a, a censorship thing. That makes sense, though. I think it could be both. Well, probably a little bit of both because some of these crime scenes, even what they showed, I was like, oh, they're going for it. They're showing it. Yeah. I was kind of surprised. I mean, Netflix doesn't give a shit, so like they can do whatever they want, but I still was a little surprised. I'm not used to seeing that level of crime scene photo. (laughs) Welcome, Erin. We're glad to have you. Thanks. So the intro with Detective Gale was very ominous, and all the pop culture of LA at the time really sets the stage for what the atmosphere was like surrounding this case in the mid-80s. I did like the context given. I liked that the music kind of matched. Mm-hmm. That's a little more documentary-based, but I did like that the music matched. It got me in the mood. It was yeah. like, oh, we're in 80s. Ew. Okay, the first thing that I wrote pertaining to this actual case, can we talk about the bravery of the woman who was sexually assaulted at six years old by Ramirez and dumped at a gas station to call her guardians? Anastasia? Can we talk about how brave this woman is, not only for just surviving that, but also being willing to talk about it openly so that other people can learn from her and see her side of the story? That takes a lot. I don't don't know that there's very many people who have gone through something like that that are willing to openly talk about it. 
Yeah. Props to that woman. Like, woman of the year. Yeah. Woman of the fucking year. I would give her more than the year. But I think that her being so outspoken and brave, it serves the rest of the community who are survivors of sexual assault, abuse of any kind, that you can come out better than what you were put through. Yeah, I don't want to spoil anything or go further than these two episodes, but she definitely has a focal point at the end of this too that's really impactful. And then one of the things that I noted about her testimony, I guess you could call it, is she describes how disgusting he was. Just nasty, smelled. And then she goes into his home, or his alleged dwelling, and actually speaks to the grossness, the bugs, the varmints, or just trash everywhere, food, and general uncleanliness. I think that speaks to the lack of mental well-being that he was experiencing. Yeah, definitely. And how he was uncalculated. Because obviously, in all these crimes, there was no methodology. No. If there was a methodology, it was the act of no methodology. Well, at first, with the cases that they showed first or the first few crimes he committed, Mm -hmm. I thought that he was targeting Asian Americans or Pacific Islanders at first. Yeah. Because all of them coincidentally, I think, were from that heritage, if I'm not mistaken. I believe the first one was Asian American, or I guess the first two were Asian American. And then there were a lot of victims. Like, it is so hard to keep up with all of the victims, all of the names. Just for our listeners, we are not trying to be disrespectful. It is just, there were so many people. Yeah. It is hard to keep track of. They all, you're watching this documentary and there's just like 30 victims that are named and we hear stories of at least least what eight or nine maybe or more victims the victims families like the stories that were singled out i mean obviously richard ramirez killed 40 probably or more people well yeah there's about and i but i think this documentary went into probably like a good 10 yeah about 10 people i would say but whenever i was doing my research there was probably at least a dozen more victims that he was never charged with killing Yeah, I mean, there was probably more that he just wasn't connected to. I'm thinking of, like, murder victims. Probably a dozen or more. Just the insanity that was this case. Like, how erratic he was in his killings. Everything from who the victims were, to ages, to demographics, to the way that he killed them. I mean, this was just all over the place. Yeah, I think that the, I guess, the chaos of his methodology, or lack thereof, was a there was a direct correlation to how unclean his home was i think that there's a very direct correlation to cleanliness of home and mental health yeah definitely Uh, and i think when we talk about serial killers you often hear people talk about how calculated they were or how menacing and and meticulous a lot of don't give up book (laughs) like a lot of serial but you hear about a lot of serial killers having that ocd meticulous Mm -hmm. mo and that's how they identify them but yeah this dude was just like i'm gonna kill everybody like it was crazy like he he literally had no rhyme or reason there was was like blowing my mind there was no race no gender there was times where he would kill a single person living alone he would kill couples and the fact that a lot of times he would leave someone alive still yeah to identify him, honestly, it was kind of stupid, in my opinion. I usually say do better, baby, but I'm not going to tell you to do better. Like He was so stupid. <laughs> yeah. Because why would you... 
I don't know. He he left so many people to identify him. He I don't know. Just dumb. <laughs> so I hate how the older law enforcement officers didn't take Gil seriously whenever he connected the child molestation cases to this serial killer. There was a lot of similarities. It wasn't the same type of crime, but as far as just looking at the perpetrator, there were definitely some similarities. And I think that we could have nipped this in the bud a lot quicker had we joined forces for all those teams working the child molestation cases and the burglaries and the murders and all the slew of crimes that he committed. Yeah, well, I noticed that disconnect, too, between... It seemed like a lot of the law enforcement didn't want to work together and didn't want to acknowledge that one person was responsible for all of this. Mm-hmm. And even though it's their job to get to the bottom of cases, to do whatever they have to do to catch these kind of people, I do also understand the humanness that would be like, surely one human can't be capable of this. Yeah. I think it's just, there's also that shock factor of just how can someone be this evil. I think there was a sense of people didn't want to believe it. They didn't want to look at all of the cases because that's not really a reality that you want to accept. And I think too that serial killers back in the mid 80s weren't as discussed or talked about or we had reason to believe as opposed to today. Would you agree with that statement? Yeah. Because I mean you think about it and well forensics and just all of the stuff they had means of catching people was so varied too. The DNA technology was not anywhere. I mean, we're still developing that. Yeah. So like, I think they were also, because it was the 80s, they were already at a disadvantage for catching someone, especially when the criminal is this erratic. So I think it's such an excellent power move, if you will, when Frank and Gil pair up. Heck yeah. Because Frank, he has that expertise. He's been doing it. He's a shot caller in the community of homicide detectives. But then you have Gil, who is this younger Hispanic man from LA working the case. I mean, I think it's excellent because at this point, eyewitnesses have described the Night Stalker as being Caucasian or a light-skinned Hispanic. And I think at this point, they're kind of leaning more towards the spectrum on that identification. So to have someone like Gil go into the Hispanic community and be able to talk to them and get some more insider information is much more likely than Frank going in there. Yeah. Because naturally, it's human behavior to give someone trust who's more like you. But one thing with that, and maybe we'll differ in opinion on this too... Probably. I think it was interesting to see the power team, the duo, and their stories and how their strengths matched up for this case. But at the same time, sometimes it felt a little like the Frank Salerno show or the Gill show. Sometimes it was like, okay, is this actually about Richard Ramirez and the atrocities he committed? Or was it about the detectives and what they had to do to catch him? I don't know. Sometimes I think maybe I had it in my head that it was more about Richard Ramirez, but also the title technically is Night Stalker, The Hunt for a Serial Killer. Right. So maybe it is supposed to be more about their journey and finding him. I don't know. What do you guys think? Drop us a line. Does that only apply to telephones? Drop us a line? What? The phrase, drop us a line, get in touch. I've never heard of that. Are you serious? I'm dead serious. They drop me a line. So to, no. I'm going to immediately request a Twitter poll, an Instagram poll. Have you guys heard the phrase, drop a line, like as get, getting in contact? I run our Instagram account. You won't see it on there. Do it. 
You'll see it on Twitter. Find us on Twitter at Crime TV T E A V. Or Instagram, Crime TV T E A V. You just said you weren't doing it on Instagram. But they can follow us. Go to the Instagram anyway. We'd really appreciate it. Even if Alyssa doesn't post cool polls. I post polls all the time. <laughs> so one of the victims who survived the Night Stalker attacks was 16-year-old Whitney Bennett. And when Frank is talking about this in the aftermath, he says, you really want to get your hands on that individual. And he says that in the most soprano voice that I could imagine. Or at least that's how I heard it. And honestly, Frank and I are the same. All I wanted to do was whoop his ass. This poor girl, 16 years old, is just beat all to hell with a tire iron. Ooh, as an East Texan, that's hard to say. And she's basically bleeding to death. And then finally, she gets some help. But yeah, Frank says, you really want to get your hands on the individual. And honestly, Frank, I want to choke the shit out of him too. There was another phrase that really he said. They were talking about when somebody was like, kiss my ass, kiss your ass. And he was like, it it gave me chills. And I was like, that'd give anyone chills. I'm a millennial. We're not in the running culture. (laughs) Anyway. My dad listens to this. Yeah, no shit. I hate that it took Frank getting on board with the same perpetrator theory for the rest of the agency to take Gil seriously. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a common thing. Like, you're younger, you're newer, and nobody takes you seriously, even if you have something to say, because there's these good old boys in there that everyone just assumes is better. We still see that today. So, fast forward to episode two. We open with the Hillside Strangler. Which I think this plug in the documentary further intensified the chaos of the mid-80s for me. See, I thought that, again, I have to disagree. I thought this was unnecessary tangent. This is not the case. Well, so, again, I'm for the theatrics, so I'm going to give you a rebuttal. Is that... Rebut me. I'm going to rebut you so hard. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I had a very butt-themed <laughs> podcast tonight. I know. So I think that the Hillside Strangler was a very big case for this time. And it happened in LA as well as the Night Stalker case. I'm going to educate you on the Hillside Strangler later in this podcast series. Okay. So be prepared. Okay. But that Hillside Strangler, I mean, it took just as much importance as the Night Stalker. It was still a serial killer killing people all across Los Angeles. So, I mean, they just made that short little thing about how this took away from some of their investigation too okay just let it be just let it be so this is where they start to really get into how many victims the night stalker had and i so they said by day 73 it was mentioned that there was already 25 to 30 cases being linked that is an attack and or murder every other day well that is prolific I mean, do you know how much physical energy, how many calories that burns? I don't know how many calories murder burns, Alyssa. It just depends on your style. But I guess this is so funny for me. But that's probably why he was eating all those damn snacks going into everybody's house. He's golly, I was just at Bethany's house last night and I just don't have the energy to burn. Okay, I'm glad you mentioned that though because Frank mentioned that He often made himself comfortable after the murder and had a snack. And I remember so clearly, I don't know why this one sticks in my head, but there was a image, a crime scene photo of a Mountain Dew can sitting on a mantle Mm -hmm. while he was talking about this. My question is... DNA evidence. Without DNA evidence, how do they know that was his snacks? He's coming in brutally murdering people, 
Maybe they were in the middle of eating a banana. I don't know forensics well enough, and I didn't understand how they could immediately say that that was all Richard Ramirez eating snacks in the houses. Look, I'm a snacker. Oh. I got I got wrappers all over this bitch. <laughs> what? The only thing that I could think of is if they took the temperature of the Mountain Dew and it was still relatively cold. I, I, Alyssa over here taking the temperature in a Mountain Dew can. <laughs> okay, detective. The only thing I could think of is especially these fruits that were left out. I mean, who the hell goes to bed? Because he comes in at night when you're sleeping, like the Sandman or Santa Claus. And who the hell is going to leave a half-eaten honeydew melon on the countertop? There's some gross people out in this world. I know. You ever been to New York City? No. Just kidding. If you're listening in New York City, I love you. So, yeah, I really don't know how they concluded that it was him snacking. I'm sure that they had some type of science that they didn't get into in the documentary. Because some people would be like, oh, why would they get into that? Just give me the straight facts. Okay, but that's relevant. Don't just drop a bomb like he was eating snacks. But we don't have DNA. They were just hit. Don't you can't just drop that, but then not explain it. That leaves me with more questions. I'm taking points off of that. I do think that the Night Stalkers crumbling started to happen whenever the Rodriguez family didn't get attacked that night. Like he opened the window and he was ready to come in, but he went into the wrong guy's house because he was a police officer and was ready to pew 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 him. Why do you think he didn't go into that house? What do you think made him? Was it the fact that she was awake and would have seen it coming? I think she heard him coming through the window. Yeah. Maybe he didn't see her on the couch. If he was coming through the kitchen window and she was in the living room and she startled him and he said, shit, gotta go because he was a boogeyman. He got you while you were sleeping and woke you up. If she was already awake whenever he went into the house, she would have more of a chance to fight back. I mean, the guy... He looks like he has a problem with wind. I mean, he looks like he's six foot eleven and weighs ninety eight pounds. That's fair. That's fair. He did not want a confrontation from these killings. And that's the thing that they had talked about in the very beginning is that he liked the startling effect, like waking you up from your sleep. Boo! Here I am. If she was like ready to box it out, bad girls club style. In her living room already, and she was yelling at her husband. It's a lot harder for him to take down two people. Yeah, that's true. Especially when one of them's got a gun. This episode got a little horror movie-ish. Usually these crime documentaries, I'm like perfectly fine. I eat my snack, I go to bed. Richard Ramirez style. (laughs) But this one got a little horror movie-ish. I was trying to put the dog out and it was like super dark. And I was like throwing this chihuahua outside on the porch. I'm like, go, go, go. I gotta close this door real quick. (laughs) It's better you than me, I promise. (laughs) I'm like sleeping with a light on. Like these these actually were a bit um, scary. I think that's what they're going for. They probably, the I mean, they probably were, but I don't do well with scary. I do okay with gory and crime. But not jump scares and stuff But like not that. like, yeah, not like yeah. creepy crawly scary. Yeah, yeah, me either. I don't want to feel that. Yeah, and it took till the second episode for them to actually start addressing the random nature of the victims, too. Yeah. I noticed that. That was not... I mean, I think the first episode was a lot of setup for who our detectives were, what was kind of going on. And then it was the second episode that we really started to get into who these people were and what the crimes were against them. Yeah. Um, so, but I do wish that had been addressed a little bit earlier because we could kind of see it in the first episode and we didn't really get into it until the second. I, I like things, I like to know everything up front, which is... <laughs> they only have so much time. I know, I know. That's just a me thing. 
So, Erin, you know what, like, just gets me mad as hell? Tell oh. me. <laughs> Doesn't even matter what I'm mad about. So, I get really upset that they had this Toyota little sedan or hatchback, whatever it was. And he drew a pentagram into the side of the car and then, boop, he darts. But they had this an impound and it sat there baking in the California hot ass sun and all of the DNA basically burnt off of the car. I didn't know that was a thing. I learned something in that scene. So it sat there for so long, but this entire time they had that little Dennis business card in Chinatown that he went to a appointment just a few days prior under an alias. So they could have caught the killer had they just gotten to that car a few days before. There were some definite, I noticed this watching, there were some definite mishaps by police. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's a perfect investigation though, so I mean that's bound to happen. Right, everybody's human. Yeah, mistakes can be made, it's not the end of the world. But But there were some notable standout mishaps that kind of irked me with this one. Yeah. And they addressed them openly in the documentary. Had this been different or this been different, like this really impeded the case, this messed us up. Like they were open and honest about it, which I appreciated. But yeah, there were a few things that I was like, like that. Like the car having all the DNA ruined that I was like, really? Come on. Yeah. But I mean, episode two ends with them planning the sting operation to catch him whenever he comes back for this impacted tooth. A very suspenseful ending to our first and second episode. Okay, so let's take our tea break. We've gotten through these two episodes. There's a lot to cover. Mm-hmm. It's time for some tea. All right. What kind of tea you got, Alyssa? I got the McDonald's sweet tea today. Oh, McDonald's? I know. It's a dollar. Oh, a dollar? A dollar McDonald's. <laughs> I have a... I don't think I'm going to say it right. It's Darjeeling. Darjeeling. D-A-R-J-E-E-L-I-N-G. I I can spell it. I just can't say it. It's a black tea. It's good. I'll believe you. Yeah. Put a little honey in there. I always have to have my sweet something. Like, I just... I'll put a little honey in there. A little milk. A little sugar. I'm just... I have a sweet tooth. I have to. I see that. I have to have a sweet. So, just looking at episode one and two. Yeah. What would you give it as far as a tea rating thus far? Ooh, thus far. These two episodes, I think I would give, I think I would give three and a half stars. Elaborate. Well, I think there was a lot of good information. I can't give it four full marks because I personally disagree with the tangents about the police officer's personal life so that's why I have I'm like three and a half stars I'll go into more detail next episode about the documentary because I me like the documentary is my bread and butter so I have a lot more to say about the documentary itself mm-hmm. yeah rather than the case you're like our case expert mm-hmm. so I'll I'll get going next episode but for now three and a half I'm gonna give it four just because I wasn't absolutely wowed and intrigued. The first two episodes are good. Don't get me wrong. But as far as other shows or documentaries that we've seen this far, like last week whenever I gave Dateline a five. 
That Dateline deserved a five. Right. Okay. So, that is Night Stalker, The Hunt for a Killer, episodes one and two. That's it. That's all you need to know. Join us next week as we dive into Night Stalker, The Hunt for a Serial Killer, episodes three and four. Whoop, whoop. In the meantime, if you have thoughts, questions, want to weigh in on some of me and Alyssa's disagreements this episode, you can email us at crimetv at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at crimetv. You can find us on Instagram at crimetv. You can find us on TikTok, Crime TV, Facebook, Crime TV. All of it. Crime we, TV across the board. We've got it all. T-E-A-V. Every time. No dash. All lowercase. So I'm Alyssa. I'm Erin. And, and that's, that's the T.